You're listening to the Men Who Made Me podcast, a show about masculinity, male identity, and how we can learn about the world from the men who made us. Today on the show, we have Jared Meidler, a self-proclaimed geriatric millennial, (laughs) a new girl enthusiast, and my former boss at Kansas State University's Career Center. I worked with Jared from about 2014 to 2017 in one of my most formative roles as a career advisor. Jared's input and voice in my life has definitely made a mark for the better, and I'm really happy to introduce you to his wisdom, wit, and kindness. I do want to warn you, this isn't our best audio, and we hope you'll bear with us through that. There might be some hums from the air conditioning or some bumps along the way, but we did warn you, this is new to us, podcasting, so we appreciate your grace along the way. However, this is a conversation you'll want to hear, so I hope you'll stick with us. Without further ado, we hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Jared Meitler. We're recording. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate the invite. Thank you for um, coming on board literally two days ago when I asked if you would both be willing to look at interview questions and hop on a microphone. Those of us that sometimes like to do things without much preparation get it, and are oftentimes more willing. Yeah. In those moments. Appreciate it. it means a lot. <laughs> um, well, cool. Well, Jared, um, I would love for you. I'll maybe give some point of reference for how I know you in a bit, but I would love to give you some space to just talk about who you are. Brief little personal summary, maybe name, work, family, anything else you want to include. Well, as you mentioned, my name is Jared Meitler. I am in a career advising role at Kansas State University's Career Center. I've been doing that for about a decade. Um, my family, immediate family, uh, met my lovely wife during undergrad in a class called Human Needs on campus, which is a really cool connection to K-State. Mm-hmm. And we have two boys that are almost 10 and 6, and they teach me a lot about life every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, beyond those things, I really um, enjoy coaching their sports teams, pouring into people through sports and activities and mentoring. Like Those are kind of who I am, both in work and outside of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, things I like to spend time on. Love it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so um, I spent, I got to spend three years working, we're recording right here at the K-State Career Center, which is pretty exciting, Um, which is where you were my supervisor in my career specialist job for, I guess not a full three years, but good two and a half years. Um, I like to say you, you witnessed my many career changes and weekly breakdowns as like a lot of students who work here constantly because we're talking about career so often we are constantly changing our own minds about what we want to do career-wise you were my first challenge really yeah tell me more about that yeah um i had only been doing you know the career conversation thing for with a career advising title for a few years at that point and i had not spent as much 
time with someone that had so many ideas and wondered so much about how they could do them all. <laughs> and that was hard um, yeah. and a wonderful opportunity for me to experiment. Mm. So thank you for your eclectic <laughs> ideas that you brought that is... on a daily and weekly basis. <laughs> Literally every single week was like, all right, I figured it out. <laughs> this is the new... The new goal, and I feel like every single time you were, like, so supportive, but also, like, I could tell was just, like, sitting there patiently and then waiting for the next time time that I would come into your office <laughs> and share the new idea, which yeah. is great, you know? It's the journey, not the outcome, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that. We learned a lot together. We, yeah, we did. I One of my favorite memories with you is when, so you were hired into our supervisor role maybe like six months into when I was working there and so anyways we had time to sit down and like talk about who we were and like what we wanted out of this job and all that good stuff and the first I think it was the first question you asked all of us was when was the time that you were at your best um which is a phenomenal question I think I've used that in icebreakers and stuff um since then but I remember I I didn't like think this through obviously all the way until I said it but I my answer was that I had just snuck into the Derby Dining Center and (laughs) they had like this camp display at the time for like some themed I don't know month and my community group girls and I like snuck into the dining center and like camped out there that (laughs) night and like I think it's still a good answer I think that's pretty representative for who I am and the level of rebellion I'm willing to (laughs) go through but um yeah I just remember saying that to you and realizing after I said it like oh you're my new boss maybe I shouldn't have said that but uh thank you for taking that in stride absolutely (laughs) well thank you for entrusting me with that information after uh just meeting me sure uh and going back to the original prompt that I gave to all of you in those initial one-on-ones. I've always been just kind of an assets-based leader in, I think sometimes it's really easy, not sometimes, regularly, it's easy for us to think about how we're an imposter, the Mm. things that we can't do, Mm -hmm. and just thinking from a strengths-based lens and trying to understand what you bring to the table Mm. from an asset standpoint. Uh, was critical so that I could make sure that all of you got to do those things on a regular basis. Hmm. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, that leads well into my first question, which was one of the things I think struck me most about you upon first meeting you and getting to know you was, like, you really do have this keen awareness for and really, like, strategic skill of listening. And I think that that plays into why so many of your career specialists connect with you so well and and trust you with a lot of types of information. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I guess, and I know that you've gone through some training for that, but where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Like, how did you learn that? Especially like, as a man, I wonder if that's often taught to you or other men, or if that's something that you had to be really aware of or intentional with. My immediate thought is that part of listening is reading people and reading people effectively. I guess the two go hand in hand. 
and I grew up in a in a family business and so my dad's an auctioneer mm-hmm. and so from the time I can remember walking um, I was working at auctions and mm-hmm. I had so many opportunities to just learn about really eclectic mm-hmm. people and I watched my dad interact with eclectic people and mm-hmm. um, you know we always make the joke in our family that we can travel one, two, three hours away, and inevitably my dad will run into somebody he knows. Um, it's the type of person he always has been. Um, but I think that's where it started. I, I watched his interactions. He would come home and talk about interactions, and so I picked up on his level of intentionality of mm-hmm. understanding things. So I think that's a piece of it. Um, beyond the family piece, during undergrad, I had a part-time sales job, mm-hmm. and I really credit a lot of my listening skills to the sales approach that I was taught. Um, that approach um, was relationship selling, and I can remember specifically doing role plays in our store where we were trying to do practice sales conversations around like a rotary phone or a touchstone phone. <laughs> yes, I'm that old. Uh, a geriatric millennial right. is the specific term. It's a great term. It is a great term. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you would ask people these lifestyle questions and, mm-hmm. you know, you'd have someone come in and say, I need a new phone. And while you could make that interaction transactional, if you spent 20 minutes talking with them about their unique both known and unknown needs mm-hmm. not only are you going to get them a better product to fit their needs but it's higher likelihood they're going to come back mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. Um, and while of course as a company you know that's part of the ploy like get them to be a return customer yeah. the company that I worked for really stood on connectedness to the to the customer um, it was not a commission based environment we were expected to do what was right for the customer every time and that to me meant I need to know you well mm-hmm. in order to get you what you really need and want and then potentially even get you more than what you want if that's going to serve you well yeah so uh, i think that sales training was a piece of it certainly my undergraduate experience in the human development classes that i took was part of it one of my most meaningful classes that i took uh, was called helping relationships Uh, we had a book um sitting very close to me right now it's called the skilled helper um, talks about the importance of active listening and so I think it was a series of those things and just a lot of practice I played a lot of poker when I was an undergrad hmm. Didn't know that reading you. people is a significant <laughs> part of that game yeah part of its listening part mm. of its reading body language um, but honestly I mean reading body language is a part of listening too it's more than just what's coming in your ear um, when you're sitting down with a human one-on-one and so those are probably the most significant things that that immediately come to mind how did that I mean how did you learn you're obviously a tremendous active listener like where'd that come for you I was such a shy kid that I wasn't that interested interested in doing the talking (laughs) like I was much more intrigued by the listening I think just intuitively and so um I did a lot of observing Mm -hmm. for a long time and I think I was also just like socially awkward Mm -hmm. and so like 
I think a lot of that was trying to figure out how to not be socially awkward and like taking cues from like sure. other people who seemed to have it more figured <laughs> yeah, out right. than I did. Um, I feel like that's where it came from. And then I think a lot of learning from honestly a lot of my training at K-State both like career-wise and like in campus ministries or things like that it's it's cool to be in those spaces that really do emphasize listening and learning without having the means to an end be like the sale or um something more transactional like you said like it this felt like an environment where we listened because we wanted to learn for the sake of learning Mm -hmm. for the sake of hopefully like the end point loving that person um so I do attribute a lot of that to time I spent here doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So Jared, how has your view of masculinity or male identity like grown or shifted or changed over the years? We've kind of talked about how you became a listener, but I mean just more holistically, like how do you feel like you've grown or transitioned into like where you are now I mean I grew up in a pretty traditional family structure I mentioned that my dad auctioned but he was also a farmer and Mm -hmm. my mom was a teacher and she cooked most of the time dad cooked some she did most of the housework dad helped some so I think about those types of things and so that was the that was the lens that I had when I was young and I got into for a long time I volunteered with an organization um, that was a a leadership camp for all males uh, entering their senior year of high school and I spent about 20 years with that organization and I was surrounded by a lot of just amazing men that really gave me a diverse picture Mm. of what masculinity Mm. is. And so I think in a lot of ways, I shifted because I was around so many examples Mm. that had so many just eclectic perspectives that they could share with me where I could kind of start to form what masculinity was going to mean for me. The other thing that comes to mind is that, you know, especially for listeners that maybe went to college, there are certain programs that are male-dominated, where I think sometimes masculinity, and to an extent, toxic masculinity can breed itself. Mm. I was in an undergraduate program that was 85 to 90% women. Hmm. And so I think I also benefited from not being around that environment. And not all young adult males have that privilege like I did. Hmm. And that's not necessarily their fault following a, you know, a a pathway that they want to go down. Um, But as an example of that, you know, I think about like a college of business Mm. or even like a sales program crazy competitive is a trait of toxic masculinity oftentimes Mm. Mm. and so I think that 
sometimes that stuff just happens and you have to be very conscious of it in order to keep yourself in check. Yeah. So those are a couple of things. And then I would just also credit just some of the people that I got to surround myself with at Mm -hmm. different times. But, um, you know, you went through a a more eclectic undergraduate program. What are your thoughts about that as a, Mm -hmm. just kind of a construct? Yeah. I mean, most of my studies were in the humanities. Communication studies is a really, I feel like it's the mix of business people and psych, kind of. Like, it's psychology of communication, so it is kind of both. Um, Yeah, I mean, I feel, there, I don't feel like there was a a great stereotype for communications rather than uh, people who didn't know what they wanted to do with their lives. (laughs) It's a melting pot for (laughs) Um, indecision. I did take one negotiation class, and maybe that would be the only place where I potentially saw, like, certain people. There were certain fields that choose that line of study. Like, for instance, like, people who want to go into law choose that field, and so... There are some people, obviously, that, like, loved the competitiveness of negotiating or um, kind of the debate process, and that came out sometimes, um, but on the whole, I don't know if I noticed it as much as maybe some other fields, but it's, I'm glad that you bring, like, competition up, because I I think it's funny, because, like, you are a pretty competitive person, like, (laughs) there's, I, Taylor told me there's a ping pong tournament (laughs) going on in, in your office. There is. And I will um, win it. And you're, yes, I <laughs> noted that. <laughs> um, I would love your thoughts on, like, how does how does that trait come out in a healthy way in what you do? And how do you, I liked what you said before of, like, um, keeping yourself in check or managing that kind of thing. Like, yeah, t- talk more about competition. Well, competition is one of my top five Clifton strengths, and I have always, I don't remember a time when I was not competitive. Mm-hmm. I distinctly remember when I have been less productively competitive, mm-hmm. and I think that comes with time and maturity and being surrounded by other productively competitive people. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that sometimes I think gets overlooked with competition is it has the opportunity to help people perform better, uh, more effectively. And that's one of the reasons why I love it is Mm -hmm. the more competitive I am, some people are motivated by that idea of like trying to be great. Mm -hmm. Not everyone, Mm -hmm. but especially if you provide competition in spaces where you know people well, you can understand how to motivate them. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes it's, it's, tailoring your competition to your audience or the specific person that that you're working with or competing against mm-hmm. um, with the hope and thought that that competition will then see them rise to a level that maybe they hadn't previously been at. The other thing that I love about competition is, and the reason why I love coaching and still competing mm-hmm in many different things, whether it's golf or softball or trivia, (laughs) any of those types of things is the life skills that come from them. And that's Mm. 
it's so critically important. I think about teamwork and I think about encouragement. I think about things like strategic planning Mm. and all of those skills are so transferable to anything we do in life. And that's, that's why I still get so much energy from things like coaching my boys sports because I know that's where I learned a lot of those critical life skills and they so easily transfer to my day-to-day work life, home life, etc. I want other people to have that opportunity as well. That's good. Yeah, I like that. Because I, I don't want people to hear, like, if you're super competitive or if you're in in those more male-dominated areas, like, that's bad and you shouldn't do that. Yeah. But I, I like the way that you are saying, no, like, there's just ways to channel it for it to be more helpful or more healthy right yeah I like that a lot well cool um when I emailed you 24 hours ago (laughs) asking if there was um anything particular you wanted to talk about you brought up um partnership and parenting um as two things that I know you as a person are really close to your heart and you care to talk a lot about so I can ask specific questions or if you just want to roll with it I would love your thoughts on that yeah sure Uh, well as I mentioned my boys are 10 and 6 Um, so my wife has an early childhood education background which has been really cool as a dad uh, to be a student in her classroom Mm -hmm. in our home Mm -hmm. in our lives for a long time but also I think it's between her understanding of, of human development and specifically early childhood development coupled with my education in human development, I know the value that positive male role models play in the Mm -hmm. lives of people, not just child to father, but in so many ways. And so, again, going back to something I mentioned before, that I was, in most of my classes, I mean, I was in a class of 40, I was one of two dudes. Mm -hmm. And so... I know that my undergraduate experience is so different than what most guys that have gone to college, for example, have. Hmm. And like most things in life, you don't know what you don't know. And so I credit a lot to my undergraduate education teaching me about what a dad could be Hmm. for the optimal development of these precious humans that we have no idea how to try to make them what we hope for them to be long term Mm -hmm. going in. And so with that in mind, you know, I think that I I love this idea of like bucking traditional gender roles. And maybe it's not as much of a deal right now in the year of our Lord 2022 (laughs) as it was in the early 2000s or the 90s or the 1960s or 70s. But... I do still think that more often than not, what you see are traditional gender roles played mm-hmm. out in homes. And of course, I'm talking about male-female relationships, and that's not the only type of relationship that mm-hmm. exists. Mm-hmm. But going back to kind of where I started, you know, like an example is my wife's a teacher. It's exhausting to spend your entire day, every day, around other people's children and then try to come home and pour into your own. And I recognize that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the laundry is my responsibility in our house. Mm-hmm. I cook 
85% of the meals in our house. Mm. And those are things that, while I might not be great at (laughs) or enjoy, Mm -hmm. I know that those are small ways that I can provide examples to my boys that are different than examples that I might have grown up with Mm. that will hopefully make them see, like, these are just jobs that happen. Yeah. It's not one person's job or another person's job. These are jobs that have to be done. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about and hear about whether it's friends or neighbors or other people um, dumping all of that workload on their partner, and it's typically the female partner, um, it just makes me really thankful and grateful of again my education and the partner that God graced me with because like I don't want to be that type of example for my boys uh, going going forward and so when you ask me about topics I mean that's one thing that I think is helpful that again I didn't know consciously until yeah. college hmm. yeah so for those who might be listening that have only um, gotten to see the traditional roles or like haven't had access to that space to be in the minority in a classroom or whatever it may be um, do you have any like advice or words of wisdom that you'd want to share for people to expand maybe their view of what male identity in partnership or parenting looks like I think my first piece of advice would be to explore that as a important conversational topic with your partner. Yeah. And to truly ask questions about what balance looks like. In addition to that, I think it's helpful to understand your partner's viewpoint that they bring to the table. So for example, uh, my wife's parents divorced when she was in middle school. She watched her mom do everything during the most primitive years of her life. And so that's also part of the responsibility that I take on is I don't ever want her to feel like she has to do that, Hmm. even though that's what she saw and that was Hmm. her reality. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think having a really curious sense of what your partner's lived experience was and then being comfortable with asking the question is that how you want it for us too and why yeah and what are the pros and cons of that if so Hmm. like any relationship i mean communication is always key and i'm not uh trying to say that i'm perfect at it because i'm not but i do think that going in with some knowledge of what the other person's expectations and frame of reference is in that area can be really powerful Mm. I love that a lot that's really cool Mm. so we said before you have two boys and you're raising them in the year of our lord 2022 (laughs) are there is there anything that you have to be really intentional about in parenting boys specifically um I liked your phrasing of bucking traditional gender roles. Mm -hmm. 
but I think that like outside of household chores can also relate to a lot of other things. Is there anything that you're really mindful of, like one or two examples when parenting that come to mind? Yes. The first one that comes to mind is uh, we are, I don't know that I would say we're strict parents. We have a fun household. We have high expectations of them and they know that words like stop and no are important Mm. to listen when they hear them from other people. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about five and 10 and 15 years down the road when they can potentially hear those words in other spaces. And so that's one, I think, really important example, given the time and space that we exist in, that you need to learn to respect others' space and perspectives and um, all of those things. And so that's one that really immediately comes to mind. And what I would say is probably the most important one that that immediately comes to mind. The other thing that is a has been a tradition with my oldest since he was old enough to speak is every night before he goes to bed, he says five words. Um, so I lead by saying I am, and he says smart, confident, brave, kind, and loved. Mm. And we intentionally chose those five words for him to say out loud every night before bed when he was two because we want to make sure that those are always things that he remembers. He doesn't always remember them. (laughs) I can point out specific times when he does not remember them. (laughs) But it's kind of beautiful as a parent to be able to have your framework in place Mm -hmm. so that when there are times where he makes mistakes like we all do, that we have things to center on, mm-hmm. that we have specific expectations. And, you know, m- those five words, we can really pull into any type of discipline type conversation. Yeah. Um, and so it's one way that we can be consistent with expectations mm-hmm. for him, but also show him how much we care about him and how those traits are important both for now and mm-hmm. down the road. Yeah, that's so good. I was getting a little, little teary when you're talking. <laughs> Don't do that. Those okay. things are contagious. <laughs> sure. Um, well, you work with college students a lot, um, specifically here at the Career Center. So you do work with a lot of students who are exploring different ideas about majors or careers um, or kind of sharpening their skills with resume building, interviewing, all that kind of fun stuff. I would love to know, just as you're working with young people, Um, I guess I have a set of questions here, so feel free to pick and choose, but are there any patterns, um, or threads of things that you're, like, seeing in your work with young men? Are there any specific fields or industries that men lean into, or, um, pitfalls even that you're seeing that in your day-to-day work maybe come into your office? Yeah, so... I'll start with one that I think is pretty visibly apparent. I mean, there are certainly some industries and professions that are both male and female dominated. Um, So just starting with some of the male dominated fields, oftentimes they're fields in STEM or fields that typically have higher salary ranges and 
you know, I do think that there is a level of perception that if I am a male, these are the types of things that men do mm. for work. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are certainly times where that can be really constricting mm-hmm. and a barrier as people are going through a career decision-making journey mm-hmm. and process. And so a lot of the work that I do and when I'm training other people to have career conversations, we talk a lot about values-based decision-making and we try to emphasize if salary is important to you, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. We all have different values. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that's not in your top values, what are the reasons, why, like truly what are the reasons mm-hmm. drawing you to this field? Because we know that so much of the hope and connection to career or vocation or purpose is based on alignment with values in that space and joy for the work because of the work based on what you value. And again, I use salary as an example because it's an easy one. Um, There's a really good... (laughs) When I talk to some students about this, there's a really good new girl quote uh, (laughs) that comes to mind. where Nick says, what is money anyway? It's just paper that some king on a mountain said was worth something. (laughs) Gold, I understand. That's shiny. Um, But anyway, I always think about that when people bring up this idea that, well, I got to make a high salary. Now, totally understandable, you know, when you talk about students from underrepresented backgrounds, students that come from low socioeconomic households, when they come in and they say, I want to make a lot of money, a lot of times it's because they don't want to relive the cycle that they lived in. Uh, Respect that. That's values, right? Um, But again, I think when you ask about themes, I do think about a lot of guys specifically that I've come in where you got to peel back some layers to Mm. get at what do you really want? Like, what are the values that you hold true? Mm. And does that align with what you think you should do um, or, or not? Mm. And being just able to support them through that dialogue is important. Is that different than the conversations you usually have with women that come into... Like, are we talking generally here, or is that specifically something that you see in your conversations with men? The the values-based decision-making applies to all people. Sure. Um, but I would say that in my, whatever, 10 years of doing this type of work... I have certainly seen more men than women that are at least forward with saying, I want to do that because it makes money. Yeah. Or I want to do that. Yeah, I mean, primarily it's around salary. Because I I do think that there's a level of like, with salary becomes status. Sure. And oftentimes I think status can be associated with masculinity Mm. sometimes positive other times not Mm -hmm. and so yeah I would certainly say that that's a theme and there's no I mean there's plenty of data to support that you know stem fields are dominated by males Mm -hmm. and certainly even if just anecdotally there's a lot of people males specifically that started engineering they're like (laughs) 
<laughs> maybe this is not it. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And engineering is only one of the STEM fields, of course. Um, but I do think you can tease that out where the idea of money, status, oftentimes mm -hmm. have has an influence on people mm -hmm. that is not values-based. Mm. Or not, yeah, comes maybe more culturally than it does from their own set of values. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's good. And it's also important to acknowledge there that values, especially for a 17 to 21-year-old, which is a majority of the students that I work with, are a moving target. Yeah. They're figuring that out. Sure. You know, often, and you know this, your 17, 18-year-old, your values are your family's values. Mm -hmm. And whatever that family system looks like has mm -hmm. a lot of impact. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, typically when you are either out on your own or start experiencing some other things in life, college mm -hmm. or not, mm -hmm. where a lot of those true personal values start to start to come into play. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Like, there's grace for figuring yeah. that out as you go. And there should be. Yeah. Absolutely. That's good. Is there... I feel like my questions were maybe more negatively asked. So I do want to ask, like, what are you encouraged by in your conversations with young people or young men these days? The first thing that comes to mind is that I, I do think, despite what I just talked about thematically, I do think there is a, a larger focus now, and especially on the heels of the weirdest two years of our lives to this point, <laughs> there is, I think, a a larger sense of purpose and people's desires mm. for career pathways. Mm. I mean, you're seeing that globally, especially in the U.S. with the Great Resignation, but it's clear that it's clear to me in my just day-to-day -day conversations with students, people care more about the impact of their work and how it aligns with their values mm -hmm. than probably in my first two to four years of, of doing this work. Mm -hmm. That's encouraging to me because that's mm -hmm. how I've always felt work should be treated is find a mission and a vision statement with a company that aligns with who you are at the core you're going to do a lot of good and you're going to feel real great about it. Mm -hmm. That's the dream, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that's something that gives me a lot of encouragement and I hope doesn't go away. Yeah. You know, there's, like anything with economics, you know, supply and demand, it's not always going to be like this where there are a million jobs open, where you've got countless opportunities to make transitions to something else that is more meaningful. Yeah. But my hope is that what stays is that people are constantly in tune with that idea that you don't have to work 80 hours a week if you don't want to do that. For some people, the rat race and work, that's what they live for. Great. We need people like that. Mm -hmm. There's a space for those people. But if that's not what brings you joy, find something that does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Couldn't have said that myself. So... We've talked about New Girl already, obviously. Comes up in our conversations. How could we not? All the time. Um, Every time you text me, I try to find the best Nick Miller yeah. gift to send back to yeah. you in reply. I appreciate Sometimes that. Sometimes it's harder than others. It, it translates. I feel like they're always um, very thematic. Um, but we, we both love the show. We, we talk about New Girl a lot. For those of you who don't maybe know what it is, it's a sitcom with... Um, mainly starring three guys and a girl roommate and they all live together and have 
zany, funny experiences. Um, but I mean, I, I'm big on pop culture and what it can teach us. And I know that we've had countless conversations where we, I think, align on that. Um, when you think about New Girl, is there anything that men can learn from such a sitcom? Wow. What a profound question. <laughs> I thought you would like it. I do. I like it a lot. I also, tapping into my geriatric millennialness, mm-hmm. you might want to coin that because I don't think that's ever been okay. said before. Sure. There used to be a show that was called Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place. Interesting. That started to drive down a lot of the roads that New Girl mm. is driving down. I have no idea if you can watch it anywhere now. Mm. But if you can, okay. take a look. I will try my best. Hope that's a good plug for your <laughs> listeners. There is a there is an episode later in the series. It's probably season six. Season five or season six. Cece and Nick are in or Cece and Schmidt are engaged. And for those that don't watch New Girl or aren't familiar, Schmidt typically is just this like macho or at least tries to portray that he's super macho the the man's man Mm -hmm. of the group crazy confident even when he shouldn't be many times um (laughs) got it going like pretty well put together of the characters on the show he is definitely the most put together character and there's this moment where he is just freaking out about being prepared to be a husband to Cece. And Nick, who is his best friend and college roommate, there's this beautiful scene where Nick says to him, ever since I've known you, you've been there, okay? You're always there. Even when I don't want you there, you're there. That's what a husband does. You fight for me. That's what a husband does. You care about what I eat. That's what a husband does. You cook for me even when I don't ask. That's what a husband does. When I pass out, you comb my hair so there's no knots in it. That's what a husband does. So guess what? You're going to be a great husband to Cece because you're a great husband to me. So I think there's, there's two takeaways here. The first takeaway is from, is from Schmidt, and that is the power of vulnerability. I think there's something really beautiful about Nick and Schmidt's relationship and their honesty and vulnerability with one another and Schmidt being comfortable to say, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Like, this is really freaking scary, uncharted territory for me. Um, And I don't know if I can do it. Mm. So that's the first takeaway. And the other side of the same coin, you know, the beauty of, of Nick to basically say, just be you, dude. Mm. You know, like, I think that's the real takeaway here is that oftentimes I think we see even masculinity is something that you have to, like, really strive to achieve in a positive sense. But really what Nick is telling Schmidt to be is, like, just be a good human. Mm -hmm. You know how to do that do it for another person that you care about just like you've cared for me that's quite profound i love that a lot i i that was reminding me of what you were saying earlier of like 
when you were learning what masculinity meant to you, you got this like diversity of um, options. And I think that's really helpful, you know, even in terms of this show too, of like, it doesn't have to look like one thing. Like you get your own version of what masculinity means. And maybe there's um, some people who do it differently than you. And that's okay. Like we're, we're meant to lean into our version of it. Yeah. 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 I mean, in so many ways, I draw the parallel between figuring out who you are as a, as a partner, as a parent, as a positive male role model to other people with with career exploration. I mean, you got to you got to get your hands dirty a little bit if you're mm-hmm. really going to understand it. I mean, you can read as much information as you want, but if that's not your learning style, if you need to touch and experience, yeah. do it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard for you to shape kind of your own mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, like the grace in the learning period yeah. that we're talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's good. I think that's very helpful to hear. Mm-hmm. Any other um, new girl takeaways that you (laughs) wanted to chat about? I think it was one of the first times that I saw, like, real, genuine friendships among men on TV, that I, at least that I can remember. Sure. That um, weren't, I mean, it's obviously a, a TV show, so it's scripted, but it does appear like very real friendships. Yes. And both like the goofy and the serious absolutely which i feel like men don't get to see a lot of and maybe i'm wrong but that that struck me when i watched it for the first time which is interesting too because it happens right you know there's a million stories of you and your college friends doing stupid stuff and learning through it and doing it together and that is one of the things that i love most about the show is they're they're goofy but they're there for one another Mm -hmm. through all of it Mm -hmm. and they call each other out on their bs too Mm -hmm. which is part of masculinity is holding people accountable to higher standards and that's i think another takeaway of the show is surrounding yourself with good people and good examples and Mm. um people that you can be an example for but people that are also an example for you yeah, I mean, that was one of my questions, too. Is there something that you have done specifically or intentionally or something that you would advise men who are kind of, like, up and coming, maturing into their own male identity? Like, what are those accountability structures or disciplines that um, you've learned from or that others can learn from? I had an amazing college roommate before I came to K-State. I had a lot of amazing college roommates both here and before, but specifically I had a college roommate uh, who ended up being the best man in our wedding, still my closest friend. And there's a couple things that I learned from him that I think are still very important and critical. And, you know, when I mentor and lead others, and one of them is enthusiasm is infectious Mm. we had a the residence hall that we lived in was shaped like a c and there were basically entrances at um kind of both of the corners so imagine like Mm -hmm. a block shaped Mm -hmm. c Uh, the entrances are at the corners and our room was right in the middle Mm -hmm. of those two entrances every time he walked into the building as soon as he opened the door he would scream my last name (laughs) Scream it. Didn't matter if I was in the room or not. Like, that's what that was his entrance. Uh-huh. <laughs> and 
there's a level of confidence that you have to have to let's just not care about what else is going on around you to tell someone that you care about them because mm. that's what it was like hey i'm coming let's go do something right mm. but i think that i have tried to live that out in my relationships with um all of the student staff and certainly uh the male student staff that i've worked with be enthusiastically encouraging to mm. other people mm. make sure other people see you being in enthusiastically encouraging to other people like that's masculinity hmm. uh, because I do think that part of masculinity or the our social construct of masculinity is confidence yeah. and I think that that's important and can be positive if used in a meaningful way yeah so that's something that comes immediately to mind he's also a, a person who This is so little, uh, but I feel like is has great lessons in it. Like, he called his mom every day. Mm. You know, and I think that that message of staying so connected to the women who made us mm. is really powerful. Yeah. And I always valued that, and especially as someone who... My mom passed when I was in my early 20s. Like, I still think about that all the time. Like, mm. gosh, what a what a smart thing. Mm. And intentional and powerful. Um, so those are a couple of the things that come to mind. The other thing is not being afraid to seek mentors and role models. Yeah. I think oftentimes we overlook that people love to talk about themselves. <laughs> it's one of the great great lessons of life mm -hmm. when trying to learn from other people yeah. like don't forget yeah. <laughs> people are egocentric <laughs> <laughs> and so you know oftentimes getting out of your own way and just having the confidence to say hey like mm. i noticed you did this can you tell me more about that or mm. like why because mm. i want to do that and yeah. i think it's really cool it goes back to that active listening and yeah people absolutely it does yeah those are the immediate things that come to mind i love that um I mean, that kind of leads into one of my final questions, which is you've already mentioned a great number of people who have influenced you, impacted you, but is there one person in particular um, that you would count as a man who made you, someone who influenced you in your growing up? There are so many. Um, there are so, so many. Certainly my my college roommate would be one of them. Um, another one that immediately comes to mind is a person who, you know, I mentioned the volunteer organization leadership development camp that I work for. Uh, I had a great mentor there whose name is Thane that I, I probably learned so much from him about how to be a man and a friend and a mentor. I couldn't even list them all because they've just been they've become part of who I am at the core now. Um, but I can remember being in really hard moments of my young adulthood when he was there and he was just willing to be whatever. Hmm. Amazing listener, never forgot anything, always a person who knew the right questions to ask, 
but didn't give advice unless he knew you needed it or you asked for it. Mm. And, you know, I think when we, when we tap into the parts of our brain that connect with hard moments, um, you really remember who helped bring you through those. And I've led a privileged life to this point, so my experiences are not what I would consider difficult on a broad range. But, you know, we all have moments that are hard, and I will always remember how he listened, how he reached out and followed up, um, and how he was just an example uh, for how to be a man. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to make you uncomfortable, probably, like, those are a lot of the same reasons that you are talking here today. Mm-hmm. Like, I really appreciate... I love that you didn't just witness those things and say, wow, great, no, I, I learned something new, but, like, you've been applying that to your work here and with students and like it really shows and it it seems like it's a practiced thing like it doesn't seem like it always um just comes to us naturally but like I can tell the time that you have really intentionally taken for people and to prioritize people and yeah like I've alluded to a lot like just sit with us in the moments where we don't necessarily need advice or uh where I mean we do but (laughs) where we just like need a person there more often than not and you have certainly been that for me so I want to thank you for that what I wish every person man knew is how much of a privilege that is Mm -hmm. like is there any greater privilege that a person can bestow upon you than pouring their heart out to you in vulnerable moments that are really dark and ambiguous and there's not a specific defined way forward and even if it is they might not want to take it like like what more could you ask for a person than for them to say hey do you have time Mm. so thanks yeah thank you Uh, Okay. Is there anything that we missed or anything else that you would like to chat about? You're the right person (laughs) to lead this podcast. And I'm really, really excited (laughs) to see where it goes. Thank you, Jared. That's very kind. I don't think this was one of the thousand ideas I had at the time (laughs) when I went to it, but it's one that I followed. But here's to having a thousand one when a thousand are not enough. Absolutely. Thank you for that. (laughs) Indeed. That last little bit of the conversation still gets me, if I'm being honest. It just strikes me how cool it is to capture a moment with the people we care about. How that's kind of the point of this whole podcast. Laughing with the people we love, learning from each other, making ourselves better, and showing appreciation for the people who grew us along the way. This is a privilege, it's a gift. And I hope it encourages you to find those moments with the men and women who made you too. Thanks to Jared for being with us on the podcast, especially in his flexibility on quick turnarounds and deadlines. 
Thanks to Caleb Miller, Bethany Van Epps, and Emmy Stewart for their help in making this podcast happen. Thanks to Smith the Mister for the use of their music on this episode. And thanks to you, the listener. As a reminder, we have an email, menwhomademe at gmail.com, which you're welcome to send in your questions, comments, and feedback. We promise we'll read everyone. Feel free to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And we're also on Instagram, at menwhomademe. We hope you'll join us next time on another episode of the Men Who Made Me podcast. Thanks for tuning in.